If you listen to this podcast or know me literally at all, you've heard me talk ad nauseum about writing. Now, it's not always easy to work in crypto art, seeing all these innovations and platforms arise every day to provide new opportunities for visual artists, while very, very few, if any, are similarly interested in forging new paths for us humble writers. Because of that, I've always been quite interested in how non-visual art mediums interact with the blockchain. I've been fascinated by performance art on the blockchain, for instance. I'm a marked fan of the experiments that the Verseverse does with poetry NFTs, that Operator does with generative choreography, and also, which leads to our conversation today, with music NFTs. There may be no more misunderstood sector of crypto art than the music NFT side, but it's been my belief, and after having this conversation, my belief has only been strengthened. The builders, artists, and thinkers in the music NFT sphere are paving the way with real grace and verve for art forms of all mediums to find a home on the blockchain. To talk music NFTs, crypto art across mediums, and the structural problems in our industries that blockchain helps disrupt, I've got Jeremy Stern on today, the co-founder of Catalog, a brilliant, brilliant dude. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm betting you will too. So please sit back, relax, and listen to Jeremy and I talk shop on this week's Mocha Live podcast. Good evening, everybody. It is 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, it is a beautiful day in Brooklyn, New York. My name is Max Cohen. I'm the lead writer for the Museum of Crypto Art, and this is the Mocha Live podcast. Uh, I'm joined by a very special guest today from all the way in the music NFT world. We have Jeremy Stern, founder of Catalog. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. Um, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Max. Thank you so much for having us on. I mentioned just before we started, but I've been following you from afar through a mutual friend for quite a while now. Um, and I'm really interested in kind of talking about NFTs that aren't visual art NFTs, which has my heart because I'm a writer and outside of some like crypto art poetry, uh, there really isn't any kind of writing on the blockchain. There's been some experiments, I think, with putting books on the blockchain. I know Judy Mam of uh, Dada.art did a book on the blockchain and there, I don't remember kind of what the uh, idea of it was, but there was some book that the people at Lit, do you remember Lit? It was like that coin that came out for a bit, the Robert De Niro face. They put out a book from someone, but not a ton of, I think, institutional experimentation with artworks on the blockchain that aren't visual arts. Now, I know a little bit about the music NFT world just because of some names I'm familiar with. DJ Skrilla, um, who we have a piece of there of his in uh, the museum's uh, permanent collection. Um, I believe he was the first person to encode audio onto an NFT. Uh, and then people like Eclectic Method and Latasha, who I believe was one of the uh, artists who helped launch Catalog uh, and Studio Nouveau. Um, but admittedly, I want to talk less about the business side of NFTs today. And I really want to talk about NFTs that don't benefit from scarcity. That's like, I think the crucial underpinning of crypto art right now from the visual art side is this problem that everything that is value driven is deriving that value from scarcity. So first and foremost, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, in our earliest writings and, and sort of public uh, communication around catalog um, and why collecting crypto media in general is important, but specifically music, um, we were pointing a lot to this essay 
uh, from someone named Mackenzie Wark called My Collectible Ass, uh, which <laughs> largely, largely sums things up, uh, can, be, can be some things up as uh, the future of collecting may, may be less so in collecting the thing that nobody else has, but in collecting the thing that everybody else has. Um, everyone in NFT land loves to point to the Mona Lisa as the sort of holy grail of, of this example, where the image is extremely ubiqu ubiquitous. It has massive cultural relevance. There are endless copies and, and remixes of it, um, but none of those, all that distribution, those copies, those remixes don't detract value from the original. It actually adds value to, to the original painting hanging in the Louvre. With regards to music, you know, it is a bit of a different medium in terms of the way that we consume it. Uh, unlike visual art where you can just quickly look at it and instantly get an idea of everything going on there. Music takes time to sit with. And like any kind of artwork, there is a lot of context behind music that in today's world with DSPs is very much lost uh, in the ocean of just sort of quick consumer playlisting, background listening, etc., which there's very much a place for. But yes, with, with music in particular, it is interesting because there, there is this existing value model around the music industry that has been established for quite some time. We could talk endlessly about uh, some of the reasons why that paper play model, valuation model for music has not had the uh, same kind of outcomes that we might hope for. But one of the biggest potentials and, and promises that we saw when we set out to put music on chain was that music can be both extremely widely available and effectively free to listen, which it is now, but also valuable to own. Um, and, and so a lot of the thesis behind that original essay was basically saying, you know, the more culturally relevant something becomes, uh, the more impact it has on the world, the more ears it touches, the more hearts it touches, uh, the more valuable that digital original has. And music as a medium, it, um, it's been collected in physical forms for many years. Uh, it largely shifted to be digital in the past 20 or so. And uh, as that has continued to evolve, we have almost lost ways to value music as an art form. It's just become this, like, like we said, paper play valuation. Yeah, it's model. like a consumable, right? It's like it's content. Exactly. But, you know, there's no reason why music shouldn't be able to be valued in the same way that an original painting can be valued. Stop there because I, I love the idea of the Mona Lisa. I think it's, you know, obviously it's ubiquitous, but um, any kind of painting, let's say, I don't know who donated the, the Mona Lisa to the Louvre um, or, you know, let's say it, there was an individual who donated it to the Louvre, right? Showing it there and then having it be reproduced does create cultural value for all of the involved parties, right? For the, institution that displays it for the artist of course da vinci for the collector kind of down the road or whoever donated the piece of the collection or sh showing the piece in the collection with the music and nfts specifically and, and i'm going to use music nfts i think in this conversation as kind of a stand-in for all of this like more public-minded um art right which can I, I believe includes literary nfts or or like literary art literary mediums you know performance art or theatrical art uh, music, every, all of these things which benefit from the same kind of cultural exposure, but which don't have such an, I think, easy metric by which to gauge the principal parties like growing cultural relevance, right? So if you are the own the masters of X song, right, you're going to benefit as if like you are the quote unquote museum that's holding the Mona Lisa. And if that song becomes incredibly um, highly played, then of course the artist is going to benefit. The platforms that are selling that art are going to benefit. But 
in the NFT world where you're not purchasing the masters, right? You're purchasing kind of, especially, and I would imagine that this applies to all of the NFT kind of mediums that I mentioned before, you're not buying the master, you're buying kind of a, an artifact that points towards your belief at a place in time, which is almost like describing value to being like a hipster, right? To being ahead of the curve. Uh, I'm curious, like, A, I know that you've seen people be interested in, in collecting these NFTs, but what is their underlying motivation? Like, what are they seeing when they're coming to, to purchase these NFTs? Being that they're kind of outside of that traditional, you know, like middleman, producer, artist kind of triumvirate of, um, of like, I don't know, cultural receivers, cultural value receivers. I think there are many, um, and it depends on the individual collector um, and potentially even the, the person they're collecting from or the specific song they're collecting or NFT that they're collecting generally. You know, a lot of people in this space like to take this kind of investment angle and speculative angle, as is the nature of NFTs generally. And, and I think is what, with any kind of crypto cycle, draws people in. It's this idea that, oh, I'm seeing other people make money doing this. So whether that's me as an artist looking to put, you know, enough money in my bank account to maybe quit that second job, um, or as a collector to, hey, I can speculate on, instead of speculating on white papers and DeFi protocols or random shit coins, I can speculate now on, uh, music and art that I think is really incredible and has the power to to change lives. So for some people, I, I think there's a speculative nature. Um, for many, I think, especially with collectors we talk to um, and in the realm of one-on-ones, uh, there's a lot of talk around this notion of patronage plus, which was coined by Jesse Walden, which is basically the idea that, you know, you are collecting a piece of artwork, um, but it's not so much with the intention of just flipping it for a profit down the road, although that in many cases is possible. You're collecting with the notion that, hey, I'm directly supporting this artist on chain. I'm forging this, this relationship on the blockchain with them that shows that you know, I am an early supporter of this person. I, I enjoy this specific piece or the work that they are doing generally as an artist. And I want to help bring more of that into this world. And you know, maybe if that artist continues to do so, they continue to proliferate and make more and more bring more and more incredible things into this world that there might be some return on that investment down the road but many collectors especially on catalog don't necessarily come in with the expectation that like hey i'm i'm going to flip this for 2x 3x 5x yeah down the road although there are those people who are kind of searching for who is that x copy of nfts and how can i get in on those early ones I've been involved for um, some months now in interviewing a lot of crypto art collectors to try and get to the bottom of like why people in, invest their money in visual crypto art, but like these kind of this liquid asset class, right? And I have an essay coming out tomorrow um, about kind of the personal relationships that people, the collectors form with the artists and how meaningful that is to a lot of these collectors. I think it's underrated. I don't think it's underrated. I know it is completely like overlooked that there is not always a financial motivation with a lot of this collecting, that it is in large part being a part of the artist's journey in some way, shape or form a, because you love their work or it's been meaningful to you B because it helps you to express yourself in your own collection. I think another thing we underestimate is how much collecting assets, especially blockchain assets that are public are a way of expression that is available to people who may not have training or confidence in specific art forms. Uh, and then of course, also because you, uh, you know, may know the person, you might be friends with them, you might see their kind of online uh, persona, you might really you pick up what they're putting down, so to speak. Um, there's so many more reasons to put your money where your mouth is than just wanting an investment. You, you can almost think of it as like a super like, in a sense, um, 
on a platform where it's like it's not just it's not just your average run of the mill. Hey, I'm showing the minimum amount of support and, and maybe maximum that this platform offers. Um, but I'm really signaling with my money and with my wallet that this is something I care about for some reason or another. And for each person, I think it can totally vary what that reason is. We've seen some uh, some like more performance artists, I think, come to prominence recently in crypto art. Uh, I'm thinking of um, Una, uh, who we've had on the show before. Um, there's an Australian artist named uh, Violet Bond. Um, there's a, I think he's a New York based performance artist named David Henry Nobody. Um, but all, you know, they do these performances and you're buying these NFTs, but those NFTs aren't really, they're not the performance itself, right? Which are very visceral and very bodily, right? They're recordings of that. Uh, or documentations of that performance, which was going on in the world at some place at some time. But again, it's still just kind of the documentation of the thing that people are interested in. It's not necessarily the comprehensive, I don't know, ideology of what's within the frame. It is all the things, the context that the frame itself represents. And I imagine that performance or anything kind of theatrical, um, especially with music NFTs, maybe one day with literary NFTs, that's kind of what you're purchasing as well. Um, it's like a stag, uh, stag flake, uh, flag stake on, I don't know, this kind of like important feeling or, or all the context that has gone into the creation of this thing. Yeah. I want to move on, but any thoughts on that before we do? Yeah, I guess I just want to shout out, uh, CXY, who is both a builder and collector in the space comes from, you know, having worked in the music industry and is also an avid music fan, uh, who has been. Um, speaking quite a lot about and and even working with artists to help document more of their creative process and put that on chain. So rather than just kind of showing the final result, um, adding more, like telling more of the story behind the artwork, um, recognizing that to many people who are uh, large fans of those artists, that uh, that is also an important piece of the process that they value. And it, even just to get a peek behind those scenes, regardless of whether you're collecting or not, I think is cool. I watch a lot of sports and like the announcers, the broadcasters who I think have the most like universal approval and who people are most interested in are those who are going to take you like under the hood of how the game is actually played. You know, the Tony Romo's and the Greg Olson's in the football world or the Jeff Van Gundy's in the basketball world, like these guys who have tons of experience playing or coaching the game. Uh, And it's so, I don't know, there's something almost intimate about seeing how the sausage is made at like the highest levels. Um, which you just really can't get uh, something I've always been jealous of with other artists. Um, Cause writing that process is not interesting at all. Process of writing. It's terrible. It looks terrible. It feels terrible. It comes across terrible until the moment at which it's done. Musicians, artists have always had a deep uh, loathing for them uh, because the process itself is sexy. It's cool. It's appealing. And it shows something about the art. And I think there's, there's, you can maybe draw some parallels here to like, uh, Patreon and, and the kinds of experiences that a lot of artists uh, put into Patreon, the, the things that they offer behind the scenes. I think there's a lot of similar similarities there that you can draw from in terms of, oh, there are people who value those peripheral offerings. Um, but I think one of the coolest things that blockchain brings in that doesn't, that didn't really exist before that is that, oh, suddenly those relationships, those, those experiences, that documentation, not only gets to be you know, sort of imbued into the fabric of the internet itself, but also you, you kind of have, you get to have your name attached to those things. Um, and I think, we, you know, over the pandemic, tons and tons of artists, like musicians specifically, uh, were streaming on Twitch. And we got to see quite a lot about how much individuals, fans value simply just recognition from an artist. And so mm-hmm. to, to put that 
um, that relationship on chain to put that uh, recognition on chain, um, I think is a powerful step in the right direction because it just opens up uh, a whole can of opportunities uh, Definitely. that didn't quite exist before. There's this uh, wonderful crypto artist named Omani LaRussa, who's uh, she's just like an incredible digital artist and is like a wizard um, with her actual technique. And she has this whole TikTok channel where she takes people through the actual process using programs that I don't understand and can't name. But um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating even for me, like a layperson with no technical artistic ability whatsoever to kind of see that process. Um, so I want to move on quickly to kind of the structural problems that both crypto art and you know this music NFT ecosystem are trying to address, right? So crypto art was not like founded with an intention. Obviously, it kind of evolved, but over time, I think a lot of the things that characterize it today are things that were invented to address structural issues in the art world itself. Um, Dada dot art famously like encoded artist royalties on pieces using smart contracts in 2017 for the first time in their Creeps and Weirdos collection, and thus artists could make money in a you know, increasing amount if their fame were to increase and their uh, pieces were to turn over, which is revolutionary. Um, crypto arts focus on provenance, uh, keeps like this seedy world of like back world art deals from being totally behind closed doors. And then of course, and I, to me, this is the most important thing. It, it's just the nature of blockchain itself. It's that even if you want to buy artwork and keep it safe, it doesn't disappear from the public eye the way that a lot of physical art does where you purchase it and then it's just gone. It's in a warehouse somewhere, somewhere temperature controlled and safe with security and it loses its ability to be art and it just becomes, I don't know, an idea. So I want to quote, um, I'm not sure if it was you or uh, perhaps a co-founder from an interview uh, y'all did with Fox with it. Um, and the quote is for over a decade, we've watched the same irrevocable problems continue to plague the music industry from convoluted ownership structures to a broken and unsustainable streaming ecosystem. We need disruptive new models that give artists more autonomy, control and earnings in distributing their work. So I guess my question is about catalog, of course, but it's also more about the larger music NFT kind of ecosystem. Like how have you together with like Zora or Audius, et cetera, how have you like collectively tried to start addressing these problems? Because obviously not one entity is going to be able to do that. It's going to require this like multi-pronged approach of different builders coming at it from different angles. Mm. There's a few things to unpack here. One is sort of like the provenance and uh, cataloging of putting media on chain. Um, and there's been you know, a number of cases in the past that you can point to like MySpace who lost years worth of music uh, due to some server bugs where no, that music just simply no longer exists uh, yeah. because that was the only place it was uploaded. Um, artists who, you know, pass away or stop are unable to afford their SoundCloud subscriptions and that music disappears. Um, other platforms deleting old content. Like the, the, there's no shortage of, of cases where we can point to where we say, oh, there is this valuable thing that existed only on only digitally on the internet that was then removed because of uh the centralized powers that had control over it. Um, mm -hmm. So like one big step forward even is just to simply prove, put something on chain where it can, you know, live there forever and have that attached to a digital signature from the artist who made it um, is already, you know, a value prop in general before you even get around to the monetization side of things. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one piece of uh, a problem that we aimed to solve when we first kicked off. Um, but yes, I think the sort of the, the if, I'm understanding correctly. One of the things you're getting at is the issue around secondary royalties being honored. Well, I think that's just, that's a vital kind or I, I know it's still kind of being fought over by parties of various levels of, um, shall we say, investment 
in uh, the future of this ecosystem. Um, but I think it's like an, it's a, a really crucial underpinning to anybody who's been here for a while or been building in the NFT world or is an artist who is creating things here. So yeah, it was just, to me, that's like the emblem of structural disruption. Uh, there's obviously other, other aspects of it, but to me, that's the m- most comprehensive, especially because it's snaked out from where it started in the visual art world to now touch music NFTs and kind of touch basically anything that's being minted on the blockchain has this um, idea of royalties as at least a possibility. Totally. That was a massive unlock for the art world period um, and a huge draw for artists entering the space for the first time uh, who are interested in dabbling with it saying, Oh, you know, if my art can appreciate and value over time, that's something that's a, that's something that I can share in that's upside that I won't be totally locked out from. Um, and then as things evolved over time uh, with sort of like marketplace wars, uh, we started to see that promise fade uh, a bit more and more. And suddenly people will realize, oh, well, there's always kind of been ways around this. One of the things we discussed early on was like, well, what if someone just does a kind of behind like a backdoor trade where they just send someone the NFT, the other person sends them uh, money and, you know, that, that was always a way to get around that. Um, and one of the things that we were leaning on in those early days was this notion that, well, you're actually taking a reputational hit if, you're, if you're conducting transactions like that. Um, that as a collector, um, whether you're anonymous or, or not, um, you know, there, there is reason that artists would not want to have their work in your hands if you are the type of person who's not going to honor the maybe not hard encoded rules but um expected rules uh, of the system and yes yeah, it's, it's very confucian in essence yeah. right that like the civilization will respect the social norms as long as the civilization is you know ready to uphold them or to shame those who don't uphold them uh, yeah so I, I think as more like on-chain reputation um has become from what i've seen like more of a conversation recently and mm-hmm. I think that's something that's going to continue to proliferate. What's uh, made you say that out of curiosity? Well, like, who, who's, who's a, been talking about this? Or two projects that come to mind off top are Rabbit Hole, um, which is kind of like uh, they run things called quests, which protocols can partner with them to basically say, "Hey, we'll offer some rewards for you to do these on-chain actions." And another one being a JPEG, um, a sort of a curation protocol where uh, you can add different pieces of NFT art to registries that correspond to um, different categories of collections or, or have some other kind of contextual meaning. Um, mm. And the idea there is that like your on-chain actions are reflective of um, the value that you are bringing to these individual apps or, or protocols. And that's something that can be easily be traced on chain, but it's not something that has been very well indexed or surfaced or, or utilized um, beyond things. So, I mean, there's, there's certain examples where you could say like that are maybe more simpler and, and more common where to say, oh, you get an airdrop for this project if you've done X, Y, Z on chain. Um, yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, projects going forward that say, oh, well, if you've you know ducked royalties uh, from my NFTs in the past, then maybe you're gonna have to pay a little extra uh, in order to mint this one. Or mm-hmm. uh, if you've honored my royalties in the past, maybe I'll give you a little something extra in addition to this mint. It may be too soon to see how those kinds of things shake out, but it is one tool that we have in the on-chain ecosystem to to help nudge behavior and create incentives for people to honor that the ethos of um, secondary royalties. 
Sure. Anything else that you guys do at like catalog specifically that is nudging people in that direction as well? For sure. Yeah. So we are uh, currently built, at least our front end is, is built entirely on immutable Zora marketplace contracts. They've gone through a few iterations, but none of them are upgradable uh, such that uh, they are all supporting um, royalties set by the artists for every catalog record um, until the end of time. So whenever you buy something on catalog or list something on catalog, those royalties will always be honored for those artists. Now that doesn't that doesn't stop someone from going on OpenSea and listing it and ducking the resale royalty. But I can we can point back to the previous discussion we just had around like the reputational hits that come along with that. We do encourage everyone to use uh, catalog um, and, and Zora's marketplace contracts for that reason, so that so that they're honored. And uh, you know we're talking in the context of one of ones here. Uh, other projects have have taken other approaches where they're kind of like their UI just inputs the royalty amount for you. So you don't even have the option as a user to, you know, set it lower. There's other projects and, and marketplaces that are working towards creating more incentives, incentives for honoring royalties too, like pseudo, the latest version of Pseudoswap um, has some sure. cool mechanisms for this. Um, and I think also too, there's um, like, if you go past one of ones and look towards additions, there's other levers you can pull here to, to help ensure that the, you know, volume and trading hands of NFTs still is putting money in the pockets of artists. Uh, for instance, bonding curves being a useful mechanism for that. Instead of selling, you know, kind of over the counter to another party, I can just sell directly back into a curve. Um, oh, interesting. The artist will, you know, the liquidity is there already. I'm going to get the sort of discovered market price for that. So that's one way. Another uh, interesting mechanism, which I'm a big fan of, is when an artist is creating a collection of editions, uh, you couldn't set aside a, a certain amount of the supply for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think Manifold and Zora both have variations of this where you can either say, okay, every say 10 or 20 NFTs minted, one is going to go directly to my wallet or, Hey, I'm going to mint this with a you know, supply cap of hundred, but I'm going to save 10 for myself. So like, these are all different ways where you can still maintain upside in um, like ma- maintain upside in the value of your art as it changes over time without having to worry as much about the uh, resale royalties being honored across marketplaces. So when artists are coming into this kind of or musicians rather are coming into catalog or the broader music NFT system, like ecosystem. Do you find that most of the time there are people who have had exposure to blockchain or crypto, et cetera, beforehand? Are they kind of disillusioned and just looking for some way to disrupt the paradigm that they've found so far? Like, what is the value add, not just of catalog, but of this, of like integration to this ecosystem that? these musicians are seeing that's drawing them in? That's another great question. Um, and I would also say that it varies from musician to music, musician um, and from collector to collector. For instance, um, uh, Dutchie, who's uh, a, a massive user of catalog and has put up a ton of his back catalog there. He's been a producer and an MC and rapper uh, for a number of years. And uh, he's, you know, he, he's told quite his story, which I won't go too much into here. You can check it out. On, on his Twitter and in his, in his writings, but a big value prop for him and putting his music on chain is uh, the provenance of it. It's saying, hey, even, you know, whatever happens to me, um, you know, five, 10 plus years from now, this music will still continue to live on. And I won't have to worry about, you know, even if catalog goes under, that will still continue to exist. So that alone is, you know, simply just putting your music on chain for the provenance purposes um, mm-hmm. is a value prop for some artists. Now, obviously, lots of other artists, especially those outside of the space, um, don't care as much about that, or at least they don't right now. Um, 
with many crypto products, I think, again, one of the biggest draws that gets people interested in this stuff in the first place is making money and speculation. And in the music industry, there is currently like no shortage of artists who feel you know a bit undercut uh, for good reason due to the structures that be in, in sort of the Web2 music industry. Um, artists are making, you know, on average, about 12% of all the money that goes through the music industry, which feels a little bit imbalanced to me. And so when we think about what is it about this tech that is important to these people who are using it, or, or at least the prospective users of this, I mean, at the end of the day, technology is just a tool for solving problems. And when you look at the problems that exist in the music industry today, you can mm -hmm. say instantly, oh, well, transparent, trustless, like permissionless payments are a huge leap forward for the music industry. Even just being able to withdraw your money instantly is like a massive leap compared to the kind of black box that, that holds money um, in the music industry today. Yeah. Um, so like the way that we tend to think about things is like, you know, there are lots of problems to solve. Um, and it just so happens that like blockchain provides incredible tooling uh, for addressing those problems for musicians, for collectors. And yeah, it's not, uh, I wouldn't say it's so much like we're a blockchain company because, because we just want to use blockchain for stuff. Um, you know, when, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, it, it, it's truly, um, it's truly like a zero to one moment in terms of, oh, we can actually create systems that are completely, that completely block out the ability for, or at least largely block out the ability uh, for bad actors to come in and screw people over the way that they've been getting screwed over. One thing that I think is lacking in the NFT world in general, but uh, I think especially in NFTs that aren't like visual first is platforms in which to actually experience the work. This has been spoken of by me and by many others, especially even in like the visual art world, right? Where you have this wonderful piece of art, but it's being squeezed into whatever screen you're physically seeing it on. Usually like a phone screen or like a laptop screen, the aspect ratio is going to be wrong. It's going to lack the grandeur that it needs, right? And anything to kind of uh, regulate that problem, whether it's projectors or there are some screens that you can like cast things to, those are from what I understand, very expensive and very technically like difficult to use. And also they don't always work very well. But you extrapolate that out past visual NFTs to something like literary NFTs, for instance, right? There are some um, like NFT poets or crypto art poets like Sasha Styles and Ana Maria Caballero who have figured out ways to manifest their poetry in an NFT form. But I think poetry has a lot more in common with visual art than it does with anything we're kind of talking about here, these things that kind of need more than initial impression or, you know, one page or one image to be experienced, right? Whether that's music where you're going to need a couple of minutes or a, a book where you need extensive lengths of time and to physically navigate through it, right? You know, you can use a music player, you can have a, a MetaMask branded music player in your wallet, but what kind of controls are, are it is it going to have? Is it going to have crossfade? Is it going to have speed up and slow down? Like, is it going to have the, artists, you know, the sourcing of who did the writing and who did the producing and things like that. Like all of these things, I think we take for granted on the platforms with which we experience this art, what you get naturally from reading a book on Kindle, it needs to somehow exist within this sphere so that the art itself can be experienced in even something close to its truest sense. So is there a short or long-term way to address this problem? Or are we kind of all in the visual art world, in the literary world, music world, all kind of waiting for advancements in the kind of integrative tech that would be necessary. 
And I think that's a completely valid answer. I'm just curious your opinion on it. No, it's a great question. And, and I think it's fascinating the angle that you approach it with around, well, if we look at poetry, it's one thing. If you look at longer form media like books, it's another versus JPEGs, versus movies, versus music, versus everything in between. Um, social media posts for free. Even. And now, these can all live in the on-chain containers that we know and love today and call NFTs. Um, but the way that we experience them, that we discover them, uh, that we like to show them off, uh, can manifest in you know endless different ways that I think we're only still kind of sweeping through the mud to discover. And and I think music is an interesting example here because there are very well established uh, systems for listening to and discovering music today mm-hmm. uh, that have no that completely neglect neglect what, whether or not the music is on chain. There are more Web3 like native solutions that focus on the listening and discovery and collecting experience of these things. I think Future Tape and SpinAmp um, are both good examples to look towards here where they're just aggregating music from all these different places. Uh, Ooh La La is another one. Um, But at the end of the day, there's a question of, is the bet that over a long enough time span as more and more music finds its way on chain, um, our user behavior is going to change from listening to and discovering music on DSPs and, and continuing to you know, do that there and then kind of jump out to different websites to purchase the NFT, kind of like, um, as an antidote for me, like I'm a huge user of Bandcamp and Discogs. Sure. And yeah. you know, my main way of listening to music is I'll discover it someplace on the internet, be it SoundCloud, Bandcamp, uh, a mix that was put up on YouTube, what have you. And then I'll go and find that file, usually through Bandcamp, um, sometimes somewhere else. And I'll download it and I'll put it in my like personal iTunes computer. And that's where I do most of my listening. Um, mm. And in that case, I'm, I'm u- purely just using Bandcamp as like a tool to jump out and, and purchase the thing that I'm looking for. And then I go right back to my you know normal habit of music discovery. Um, so some things, I think for, for at least for some people these days, the main value prop that they are taking advantage of with Web3 apps, at least in the case of music, I would say maybe in the case of writing as well, like with Mirror um, and, and maybe some of these other mediums that you've discussed. Um, it's kind of like the, the storefront to acquire these things. And that's, and that's our main relationship with uh, those assets at the moment is I, I collect it, it sits in my wallet. Maybe I flip it. Maybe if there's other perks for it, I can you know flip some knobs and, and do something with those NFTs as well. But for the time being, you know, a lot of these places are effectively storefronts. We think of catalog as a record shop uh, where you go through and browse for records, kind of like you're flipping through vinyl, um, flipping through crates until you find something you like and maybe you take it home. But over time, I do think that the experience, as more things move on chain, there's going to be increased interest and demand. Like we're already starting to see it today, but um, there's, increased, listen, there's increased demand for places where I can show off my collection of a certain kind of thing akin to like, you know, a, a shelf of vinyl on at your home or a, a bookshelf or, or the clothes in your closet. Um, you want ways to display and show these things off. You also want ways to consume them. So maybe I have a listening room in my home where I put those vinyl uh, on from time to time. But yeah, I, I guess there, there was forever this tension, I think, between ah, there's this growing budding space of consuming on-chain media. Um, depending on what that medium is, it has different ways that it wants to be consumed or discovered uh, or shown off. Um, and it's constant and that media can also and oftentimes does live in the more traditional like web two internet space. And yeah, they're constantly, you know, the, it existing in one place or another doesn't tend to have a strong effect on 
the value of it living in either place. We always have to have that bifurcation, right? It's like artists who are trying to have their music played as much as possible, but are also, you know, giving or offering like meet and greets to a very small subset of the population, right? That is going to not only be interacting with their music in a, you know, audio sense, but have like a really deep connection to it. If slash when there is this kind of greater adoption for, you know, the blockchain or music NFTs in general within the industry, do you think it would come, it would have to come from the artists or do you think there's a world in which consumers themselves looking for new ways to form relationships with these artists would kind of push the industry forward? That's a great question um, because a lot of uh, collectors that we've talked to or even people who are prospective collectors who are just interested in the space from afar, um, a co- one of the most common questions we get is, well, what am I actually buying when I get a music NFT? Um, I think that's partly because music already has this existing value model around it that people are so used to. So people think, oh, do I get a share of the royal, like Web2 royalties for it? Do I get any publishing rights? Um, do I get something else in addition to it uh, that gives me more reason or to buy it, that gives me more value out of it? which we don't really see as much in visual art collections outside of maybe some promise to like be in a community. A lot of people have accepted the notion that, oh, I am collecting this for the art and I just get the NFT. Um, But uh, to bring more people into this space, one of the things that I do think needs to happen is the sort of like mental and narrative shift around the value of owning a piece of on-chain music. While I'm totally down for the experimentation happening with giving people perks for collecting these things. Um, I think there's tons of cool stuff happening and, and no shortage of artists to look to uh, who are playing around with those lovers. For me, I, I still think like one of the most powerful unlocks of this technology is to allow music to be valued as art in a way that wasn't previously possible before. And then you can build any kind of supplemental experience you want around that if you so desire. It's, it shouldn't be like this hard requirement. Otherwise we're kind of going back into the game of, oh, well, everything in the music industry that people pay for uh, is are things that are peripheral to the actual creation and consumption of the music itself. Um, and most of the money, whether it's like through merch or tours or whatever else, while uh, you know, I love those things, I love buying sample packs off Patreon and, and supporting artists in different ways. A lot of the money in the music industry isn't actually, you know, in direct support of the music itself, if that makes sense. I want to have a bit of a tangent there. I might have lost your original point. but uh. no, 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 totally. I, I love where you went. And it was making me think um, of just our relationship to music in general and our relationship to what I am kind of conceptualizing as like publicity-minded art forms, right? Where as much exposure to the public as possible at all times is desired and wherein the original copy does not have specific value to the consumer. Um I was watching The Sopranos last night and it ended an episode with a song by uh, the Kubas. I've been trying to make you love me, uh, which is not on Spotify. And for me, when something's not on Spotify, there's like a moment where I kind of get this whole, you like see the narrative, right? Okay. Why isn't this on Spotify? Well, there must be a problem with the rights. What's what happened with the people who wrote the song or their families? What are they? You know, obviously they don't enjoy the business model or there's, there's been a decision made like that whole narrative kind of opens up. Suddenly you're like, how much do I actually like this song to, to go out and listen to it in a way that's less convenient for me? But it also, in a, in a sense, makes that song scarce in a way in which it wasn't scarce before. I cannot bring that song into my library. I cannot just have it in my life wherever I want it. Now, I don't have a deep relationship with that song other than I 
thought it sounded great. Um, and I'd like to listen to it again, but one can see the idea that if there is at any point, a, some kind of an exodus from streaming that you said DSP, right? That's what you're calling streaming platforms, digital streaming platforms. If there's some kind of exodus because of, you know, in the same way that like the WGA and um, SAG uh, unions are on strike because they just are not enjoying general industry practices. I'd be interested to see if there is this kind of scarcity that would develop amongst music that it can no longer just be listened to. So I, I wonder if people would kind of, revert to this structure where they're viewing this again as a scarce asset i don't think literature can ever really have that because so much of literature is printed and it just exists unless there's mass book burnings which i mean there have been um and you obviously do have rare books but usually it's like rare copies of the book not like the content itself this makes me think of a world in which the blockchain is not affixed to music nfts or any kind of public minded nft as the central paradigm but as something like peripheral that helps with the search and discovery, that helps with the access uh, when this totally unfair paradigm that we have now inevitably comes to blows that are going to impact the consumer. Just like with streaming where for you know 12 years, we were all completely spoiled by the glut of shows and movies that we could watch for very cheap all the time. And now we're slowly seeing that peter away until the point at which it either becomes prohibitively expensive or is taken from us altogether. I mean, there's a few, there's a few thoughts that come to mind for me and they're all pretty salient. Um, one, one is that like internally at catalog, we, we sometimes refer to our mission as like creating this library of Alexandria for music. Um, but one that you can't burn to the ground, like one that we don't have sole control over as um, the people you know, building the infrastructure, but rather it's, it's there, it's permanent. It's for everyone to access and discover until the end of time. And it's built on these rails for value exchange or you can run all kinds of cool experiments for, um, you know, putting more money in an artist's pocket, helping them to live more autonom uh, autonomously and, and on their own terms. Um, so that's kind of one piece of it for me. The other is I think uh, people are quick to, people don't really, people, especially not in the crypto world, don't tend to give much thought or, or care towards uh, the permanence and the existence of their data or other data that they care about on the internet. Um, and it's only when there's these sort of nuclear scenarios where suddenly they realize, oh shit, like yeah. I could lose, you know, if my Twitter account gets banned, suddenly I lose my entire history and social graph there. Yeah. If, uh, my, when there's a MySpace bug, all of a sudden, all those demos that my band had recorded and uploaded over the last decade are completely gone. Those are yeah. those kind of wake up moments for people where they say, oh, this is a real problem and it's not something I really thought about up until now when it started to affect me or someone or a neighbor of mine. Yeah, we talk about that a ton with the metaverse where like, you know, the data that you would need to theoretically enter the metaverse in any kind of comprehensive way is so invasive and so all consuming to your personality um, and, you know, your mental health and all these different secondary triggers. And the idea that if you were to leave Facebook's metaverse for a different metaverse, they would own you know, whatever you had there, right? Your history, your social graph, your name, your, you know, all of the data about your neurodivergence that they had collected over time, you then would not be able to take that with you. They somehow own these markers of of your very identity that you've digitized. It's a terrifying thought. And, and I'm a bit of a dying breed on this one, but when it comes to sort of collecting music um, in, in the non-on-chain uh, sense of the term, like since 
probably sixth grade or so, um, starting with like iTunes and, and my iPod Nano um, and CDs to now, um, I, I download all my music into iTunes, so like locally on my computer and then back it up. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's not realistic in my opinion, but it's also not impossible. The idea that some of our favorite DSPs will not uh, continue to exist in five, 10 plus years from now. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm tethered to Spotify. Like I just, the nature of having all this music that I love there and having my playlist there, you know, they, they hooked me early before I kind of really understood what I was signing up for. Yeah. And, and it's useful. Like there, there's, there's a million good reasons why as a listener, it's like, that's the move. Um, but I, I, I like to joke that, you know, when the apocalypse hits, um, that, you know, I'm going to be trading USBs of old Frank Ocean albums uh, to people for, for dinner every now and then. If anything is going to be valuable at that point, it will be <laughs> USBs of Frank Ocean albums. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, when all when shit hits the fan, um, whether it's you're on a flight and they don't have Wi-Fi uh-huh. and you want to and you didn't download that that latest album that you saved on Spotify or for whatever reason that it's just it's there's some comfort that I receive from knowing that. Like I have all these files locally and, and that if they disappear everywhere else where I would normally be used to, to getting them, they exist somewhere that I can access them. A lot of, there was a lot of uh, slightly tangential, but like a lot of artists, especially in kind of the golden era of SoundCloud, would just go on these upload sprees and every day or every week, they're just putting out tunes that they had just cooked up uh, from their DAW. And it was just this like beautiful time for experimentation and almost this like musical renaissance where people were just experimenting with different different genres and riffing off of each other um but so many of those artists have then gone on and removed those tracks for whatever reason um and a lot of those tracks were so special to people it was like maybe they weren't up for very long or or they were and it just gained all this notoriety and then they disappeared to the point where there's now even accounts uh where they they are purely like archival accounts for artists like a, a fan basically starts up an account that says like Mr. Carmack secret gems and all the, you know, Mr. Carmack tracks that he took down off his own prile, profile usually find their way up onto this alternate profile. Um, long winded way of saying um, there's a lot of amazing music out there and content and media out there that uh, we take for granted will continue to exist. And a lot of times it ends up not existing. And so, uh, you know, the blockchain is putting that, putting that media on chain um, is one very effective way to, ensure that that doesn't disappear on us without uh, without you know, ample notice. I think that that's a, an incredible point and a wonderful place to uh, start tapering off our conversation today. One thing I will do and what I like to do before I end is talk about sports for like a minute and a half. You care about sports at all or should we just skip that altogether? Um, very loosely. I'm like, like, I don't properly follow anything. Uh, I'm the kind of, so I grew up in the Bay Area and then went to college in Boston and currently based in Denver. And I feel like I've just been blessed with uh, winning. Seeing a lot of championships. Yeah. Like giants, warriors, Red Sox, Pats, and and now the nuggets and and the abs. Um, For someone who doesn't follow this stuff very closely, uh, it seemed to be like have a little bit of a good luck charm there, but I know I love watching. I love going to games. um, Even though I don't go very often, it's exciting to me, but I can barely name, uh, can barely name any players these days. Fair enough. During the the basketball season, this becomes like a five or six minute like vent session about the Celtics. Um, that Colborn, my co-host, just very uh, tangentially just either lets me peter myself out of, or you know, kind of throws me a ping pong ball that I hit back and forth to myself again and again. So, uh, anyways, 
I wish I could riff from Dorothy though. The only things I could maybe offer is uh, I played a lot of NBA, like, so was it NBA Live 07, 08. So I was just obsessed with like, oh my God, Yao Ming is so tall or look at Sean Marion's three-point shot. That's ridiculous. Um, now you're talking my but, language. <laughs> yeah, but I haven't, uh, I haven't kept up too much. The risk of alienating further listeners with the talk of people like Sean Marion and the other 07, 08, like all-stars. Uh, let's wrap up here. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on today. This was an awesome conversation. I'm looking forward to uh, listening back and, and getting all this insight, you know, direct. Um, any last words for the people before we kind of get on out of here? Nothing huge. Thank you so much for having us on. Um, I love what y'all have built with Museum of Crypto Art. I think it, you know, in the spirit of a lot of the things we were talking about uh, in this conversation, I think it aligns uh, quite nicely with y'all's mission. Um, and especially us as like a curated platform and, you know, looking to shine a spotlight on music or cultures um, or genres that might not otherwise have a, uh, you know, have their have ears and wallets on their work um in the web3 space uh it's cool to you know have some some alignment there yeah we've been on on the catalog front we've been uh doing some long overdue facelifts uh to the site that just improve the listening and discovery experience um and creating a bit more network effects there and you know scheming a bit more on ways to uh, lower the barrier of participation uh you know right now uh one-on-one record which kind of commands a higher price point um, as the digital original uh, isn't in the uh, sort of price range for a lot of people, even, even in the web three space today. Um, so we're, we're working towards uh, systems for, you know, lower cost value exchange um, on the platform, which I'm very excited about as well as sort of new, new layers of curation and listening and discovery um, that don't really exist uh, anywhere in the space today, but, um, I think complement the uh, the natural offerings of blockchain and, and Web three infrastructure nicely. So um, yeah, still we're, we're cooking pretty deep right now. Um, don't have any timelines on stuff, but really excited about what's coming next. And uh, in general, just want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast and for being a part of our journey. Um, it's just really special to us to see people who find amazing music on our site, who support artists, and then then go to see those artists form relationships with those people, um, go on and create more incredible art and, you know, sustain themselves over time. Well said. You can follow uh, catalog at catalog works, uh, no UE at the end, just C-A-T-A-L-O-G works on Twitter uh, or visit them at catalog.works. That's it. Just catalog.works. That was Jeremy Stern. I'm Max Cohen. This has been the Mocha Live podcast. I got a cat who's, uh, scratching against this chair so it's probably time to go we'll be back next week at 5 p.m est with some more conversation good times please subscribe to this podcast on spotify apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and if you get them from other platform tell me uh i don't know any others and uh yeah we'll be in touch see everybody uh next week take care cheers all have a good one This podcast was produced by me, Max Cohen. It featured intro music by Dayfox, as well as theme music by Julian Brangold.